Listen to a word from God this morning, Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 37. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word of God. You have citrus growing where you live right now. It's that time in Southern California. The orange trees are heavy. We have two orange trees in our backyard. Sabbath morning, the spouse in our house, the spouse in my house, he makes fresh orange juice every Sabbath morning. It's the kind of juice you pay $8 a glass for at the Mission Inn, you know? We either, all of us, either have citrus or someone is giving us citrus or someone is asking us to come pick citrus right now. Yeah? The harvest is plentiful in January in Southern California. So the imagery in the gospel passage this morning from Matthew for a Southern Californian, it's clear. There is a crop to collect now. It's urgent because the, the ratio is unbalanced. There's a plentiful harvest and there are few workers. The trees are full, so come now. Or, or wild creatures will eat the crops or the fruit will spoil. If you garden, you get it. There's a window of time for planting, a window of time for harvesting. It's harvest time. Now, I'm a kid raised in the church, formed and shaped not only by the Bible, but by the grown-ups with the Bibles. I know that the harvest and the field and the crop and the workers and the entire enterprise in this story, it's one way to talk about the kingdom of God. Matthew prefers kingdom of heaven. This is what the world looks like when God sits on the throne, when the agendas of God are in motion, when they're actualized. It's a brilliant lesson plan by Jesus, by the way. He lives in an agricultural society where their entire economy, their entire existence is based on the land. To us today, Jesus might say, the kingdom of heaven is like an electronic device. I mean, go ahead, tell that parable. I'd actually kind of like to hear that parable Ad libit, church, the kingdom of heaven is like an electronic device. How so? That's how parables work. For them, for Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmland, a field, a harvest. What are we harvesting? What are they harvesting? People, people. And it's a bumper crop. Where are the workers who will go into the field? Who can you send? Who will respond to this call? And, and, and did you know that your pastors were actually called field workers? We're paid for, our salaries are paid for out of something called the field budget by Southeastern California Conference. We're hired by the conference office and sent here to this church to carry out ministry. We're the ones out in the field, not in a corporate office or in one of our schools. So Principal Labette Munoz-Beard, who welcomed us earlier, she's an education worker. I'm a field worker. <laughs> At my first pastor's meeting when I was a baby pastor, I actually wanted to show up to my first pastor's meeting in overalls and wear a bandana and a hat and carry a basket with grain and produce and a pitchfork because I'm a field worker. Our region is called the local field, the home field. Your pastors, field workers. And it's also a reminder that our organization was birthed in the 19th century and the most recent organizational makeover happened 100 years ago. It's possible we speak a language all our own. So take it from a field worker. The harvest is about people, gathering people into the kingdom of God, reaping souls for eternity. 
As a kid raised in the church, I learned the harvest is a serious scenario over salvation. Matthew will talk about the harvest again in chapter 13. Actually, there'll be six parables stuffed together in an extensive day of teaching by the sea and on the sea. Half of those parables, short stories, they're about the land, the sower and the seed, the weed among the grain and the mustard seed. Why do you talk in parables? The disciples asked Jesus in that setting. One of those parables, the wheat and the tares. In contemporary Christianity, we've come to tell and hear the story this way. prefer your Bible stories with a soundtrack and a producer and a, or like me, you need to exhale a little bit. That's intense. This framing of the harvest has a long history. Jesus comes with a strong and long history himself of these short stories or apocalyptic or age, uh, age of the earth or end of the earth stories. Jewish parable tradition, it has a long history. Matthew seems to lean towards the end of the age stories, stories from the outer realm where there's weeping and and gnashing of teeth and there's fire as the ultimate end of evil. Evil will really end. God will draw a line on it. Matthew counts on it and he borrows images and stories to make this clear and final. 
We need to remember Matthew is a witness to the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD. By, by the time he writes his story down, he has witnessed things. He's witnessed the scattering of the people of Israel. He's witnessed religious persecution. He's witnessed government oppression, a revolt or a few, and yeah, some religious people behaving badly. Matthew's God needs to arrive. The kingdom needs to break in now. Matthew's unique storytelling. Put, put it in the hands of interpreters, Christian interpreters down through the ages, and well, watch the damage. And remember, it's never Jesus, it's interpretations on Jesus that do damage. Interpretations on Jesus become weapons. One author says fratricidal weapons, family-killing weapons. For example, the little parable about the, the weed and the wheat, the weeds. In the fourth century, the Christian thinkers argued about this parable. One side claimed that this parable is about the world out there, not the church in here. Weeds exist in the world, so leave them alone in the world. But if you find weeds in the church, we should pluck them out. The other side of the conversation said, no, 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 no plucking allowed. Everyone grows in the harvest. Heresy inside the church, outside, leave it all alone. It needs to be tolerated. A thousand years later, Reformation time, Luther said this parable is actually for Christian ministers, for the field workers. And the church, we can exclude heretics. We can kick them out. Just don't kill them. The state, however, the government, they can kill them. But the parable is not really for the government or the state. Not every Christian leader was this generous, by the way. If you dig around enough in the 1550s or so, we can find church leaders putting other church leaders, thinkers, burning them at the stake because they're considered heretics in the church. And we have a parable and a teaching for this, the parable of the weeds and the wheat. The Bible tells us so. Jesus, no, it's not Jesus. It's interpretations on Jesus which do this kind of damage in the 4th century, in the 15th century, in the 21st century. It's difficult to unlearn authoritative and popular and damaging interpretations on Jesus, and it's difficult to go back and unhear and unsee some of this. In Matthew 13, the parable about the harvest, it leaves the crop and the weeds to grow together, and there will come a time, there will come a time when God confronts evil and evil dies, but you're supposed to leave it alone, according to Matthew 13. Footnote, sidebar, while we're at it, there are more generous and accurate ways of thinking about this rather than good people and evil people and good people who belong to God and evil people who belong to the devil and one group that will live eternally with God and the other group that will meet a fiery death of some kind. This is not actually what I teach, what we teach here. It's not what Adventism teaches. Matthew 13, it has a messy tradition and it stirs our ideas about the harvest and the mission of the church. Matthew 13 is not addressed to the crowds, by the way. It's addressed to the insiders, the disciples, those who've just come home from doing ministry with Jesus. These workers are sent out in Jesus's name on Jesus's mission. They had a mixed response on their journey, by the way. It was a difficult trip. The field workers have come home. They're licking their wounds. They've learned that field work, is hard work. 
And in that moment of downtime and recovery time, Jesus gives them a clusters of stories that say, kingdom work isn't for the weak, so catch your breath, clean your wounds, reorient yourself to the gospel, head out again tomorrow. Listen again to the appeal from Jesus. Just before he sent those disciples out on that mission, this was his instruction to them that day. Matthew 9, 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The need is great. We need help out here in the field. Ask the one responsible for the field, and, and that one will send us help. We need help for what? Getting the gospel heard? We need help with Bible studies. Do we, do we need help with decisions for eternity? Do we need help with baptisms? We need help with membership classes. What exactly will you be asked to do if you go into the harvest with the ministry and the mission of Jesus? Here's what Jesus was doing when he paused and asked for help. He healed a paralyzed man and several were standing around watching and questioning whether he was allowed to do this or not. And he healed a little girl who had connections to the synagogue and then a, a little older girl bleeding who had connections nowhere. He healed two blind men. He healed a man with a demon who was also mute. This happened and then Jesus went about the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest Send out laborers into the harvest. What exactly would you need to do if you go with Jesus into the harvest? Check the beginning of the story, Matthew chapter 4, all the way back at the beginning. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics, and he cured them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. Jesus proclaims the gospel and he does the gospel. He says it and he demonstrates it. So what exactly would the disciples do if they go with Jesus into the harvest? The harvest, the crop, it's sick people. It's a bumper crop. Every direction Jesus looks, it's another lineup of people needing a healing. The word for healing in the original language, therapuo, therapuo. It's this, it's this word where we get our word therapy, the, our English word to heal, to cure, to restore, for help. What exactly would the disciples be doing if they went out into the harvest? When our niece was younger, under age 10, she learned in church that she would be sent out into the harvest. When she was, uh, she learned from one of the leaders at the church that her job, should she choose to accept, accept it, when she went into the public, she would need to ask people to give their hearts to God. It just so happened that this one week after going to church, she was on an airplane ride. She was being uh, flown as an unaccompanied minor, sitting between two adults, two strangers she'd never met. She looks to the left. She looks to the right. She has an assignment from church. 
She looks and checks out her options again, and finally she dives in. She turns one direction and says to a lady, would you consider giving your heart to Jesus? The lady says, I already know Jesus. Thanks for asking. My niece smiled and shook and exhaled, and her sweaty little fists went back down on her legs. Thank God this woman already knows Jesus, and I did my assignment. I can go home and say I did it. What exactly is the work when we go with Jesus into the harvest? Do you hear the thrust of Matthew's gospel? Jesus is healing every kind of thing, the Bible says. The mission of the Jesus movement from its earliest days focused on healing every kind of thing. The nature of unhealth is as complex in biblical times as it is today. Medical anthropologists, social scientists, historians, healers, religious scholars, they would all warn us that there's a matrix, an interdependent intersection of persons and society and nature and the supernatural. It's complex. There's disease, some kind of a biological or psychological malfunction. There's illness, secondary response to disease. There's sickness, which is like these socially recognizable signs that something's actually not right. It so happens in the Bible, like today, you could focus on the disease and mistreating the illness, or you could address the illness and mistreating an underlying disease because the nature of unhealth is complex. So the graphic for this sermon series, if you noticed it, it represents this kind of messy matrix of interdependence, acknowledging that healing is never simple and it's never a linear movement. We move from point A to point B and we throw a party, we've arrived. No, no. This afternoon, do an image search for yourself. Simply do an image search for the word healing. You'll see what we learned here at the church, that the diagrams for the healing journeys are complex. They're complex and they're never, never a linear line from point A to point B. In order to attend to healing, we'll have to learn to let people tell their truths and we'll need to learn to hear them. I think this is part of what the youth of our church name when they say issues of identity and belonging and meaning, they're not fulfilled easily in the church because letting people tell their truths and hearing their truths is not so easy. And assuring people will be with them on the other side of their truth telling, this is sacred work. So we've asked, you know, do you really want a healing? That's a that's a question from Jesus. Do we really want a healing? Sometimes the honest answer might be no, because it's difficult. I don't trust me. I don't trust you. It was a few years ago, I remember, when a law had been passed in the state of California. The restaurants had to print all of the calories on the menus. So when you order an item, you know exactly what you're going to be eating in terms of caloric intake, right? Do you remember the Sabbath? Some of you were here years and years ago. I wandered into the sanctuary way down the center aisle with a menu in my hand from the Cheesecake Factory. And one by one, I asked us, what, what do you like to eat? What do you order when you go to the Cheesecake Factory? What kind of cheesecake? What entree? What's your thing? Oh, avocado egg rolls. Uh-huh. And we looked item by item by item. And I asked the people, do you want to know how many calories are in your egg rolls? Yeah, not so much. 
It, it turns out, if you talk to the manager of the restaurant during that era, she said, listen, the, the menu didn't make that much difference. We distributed the menu to the tables, and a lot of the people said, take it away. Wait, I don't actually want to know. I don't want to open it and look at it. I don't want to know. I came here to eat. That's the truth. Do we want a healing? Do we trust ourselves? Do we trust the people on the other side of the storytelling that when we've told our truth, the people will still be here to listen? In a sermon series on healing, it's easy and tempting to, to gather the miracle stories from Scripture and live from the high points of the storytellers, Old and New Testament, and let those stories stir our imaginations and our hopes. We could read stories of when the land is healed of famine and the skin is healed of leprosy and the womb is healed of barrenness and the village is healed of war. We could read stories about the soul being healed of pride and, and the imagination healed of smallness. It's tempting to gather all these miracle stories from our tradition and teach them to ourselves and pray over them and long for more of that. Then comes Jesus with an invitation we need workers for the field who will go out and sit among all kinds of disease, sickness, illness. So church family, we can either talk about a healing culture, we can complain about one we don't have, or we can create what we believe Jesus asks us to create one story at a time. We wear disease, illness, sickness. I wear disease, illness, sickness. 24 hours a day, all of us. They are birth defects and chronic disease. They are terminal diagnosis. Some of us are in critical care or step-down units or we're at home making it on our own. We have old wounds and scabs and scars. We've had accidents. We have identity, lies, and social stigma. We wear all of this. I remember once traveling a long time ago, a long ways from home, because it's easier to tell your sickness stories away from home. I remember once standing in front of a group of people saying, let me tell you something about adopted children. I was adopted at birth. And these are such miraculous and glorious interventions for children who wouldn't have a home otherwise. Usually we talk only about the miraculous intervention. There was a time when I was um, sixth, sixth, fifth, sixth grade, a girl at school began to tease me about being adopted. And she just pushed and pressed and prodded and pushed and pressed and prodded. One day riding home on the school bus, she said to me, you know what? Did, I don't know if you know, but have you seen this show on TV? This show called The Maury Povich Show, right? Don't, haven't you seen those stories now where they're reuniting families? You know that your, your family, your real family, they can just come and get you at any time. They'll just come and knock on your door. Or they can come in the middle of the night and they'll just take you and you'll have to go with them. And I knew this older girl was mean, and I knew this older girl was bullying, and I knew, and still, I received that lie, and I embodied it. So to this day, for years, actually, for years I slept in my room trying to figure out how to keep the window closed so no one could come in and steal me at night. For years, I've walked around worried, afraid, who's coming for me? Am I safe? Am I okay? 
We all carry wounds. Some of them are scars and scabs. Some of them are birth defects. Some of them are terminal diagnosis. Some of them are old wounds and accidents and identity lies and social stigma. We are wrapped in these lies. Scott McKnight says, the church on earth is for hearing the cries of wounded people. We all together are either wounded healers or wounded resistors. It's possible for us, the church, to develop what he calls empathy radar. We can be tuned into the trauma of one another. We can be tuned into the trauma in the world. By the way, how many of the commercials from the big game on Sunday took on the theme of reconciliation in a wounded country? How many of us will be healing from the January 6th attack on our nation's capital? The stories are just beginning to be told. So it is the church can develop an empathy radar. We can be a community of wounded healers or wounded resistors. What can we practically do to work towards a healing community? Develop a healing inventory for yourself. What are you willing to name? What are the wounds and the scabs and the scars? What's the active disease and diagnosis? What are you willing to share? And what are you willing, what am I willing to hear and bear and carry for someone else? Not every day is a day for carrying someone else's story, while at the same time, none of us should suffer alone. So we have to navigate that tension. What takes the Gospel of Matthew, an entire book to unpack, John did in one sentence in our story last week with the healing of Lazarus. The community around Jesus that day had one instruction, the very last sentence of the story. Jesus said to the community, unbind him and let him go. Binding bandages don't belong in the living. No one can be free, swaddled in layers of debris. So it is the community that has this significant role. Ours is to make sure no one trips and suffocates on bandages. Ours is to, to encourage that we come out of the safety of our secrecy and our sickness. Remember, sickness is familiar. Wellness is work. And this is why the body of Christ. No one should be able to out-community the community of Jesus. This week, I heard Alan remind me that a few years ago, when we received a letter here at the church from someone wounded and in need of a healing, someone in jail longing for a faith community, asking if someone would respond and write back and sending letter after letter out of the jail to churches and no one would respond, I was reminded this week by Alan Martin that when we told George's story, George Hernandez's story here in this church, Alan was the first to jump up in church, come and ask for George's address, how to write a letter, how to respond. Samira was another. Three, two or three people wrote to George while George was in prison. And when George came out of prison, it's been a couple of years since we told this story. The day George Hernandez was baptized in this church, his son came to witness George Jr. And we told of the community George had found here and a Sabbath school class and a potluck group and people who called him friend, people who called him friend even until the last weeks of his life. Just a month ago, 
just before Christmas, when George in the hospital, his life was lost to COVID. But it wasn't lost alone. Many of you were calling and checking on George Hernandez. The, the one sentence in the letter that he sent the church is, do you think I can come to your church? Will your church accept me knowing everything about my story? Jesus says the harvest is ripe and the workers are needed. Are we ready to join that mission?